Well, good morning. It's certainly good to see you. As we were singing that song, I couldn't help but reflect upon a dear couple that were our neighbors for many years, and they had a little boy whose name was Judah. And when he would hear that song on the radio, he would ask his mother, why are they singing about having a bee on their lips? Like a bumblebee on their lips. That's how he heard. I got a bumblebee on my lips. That's, that's a good thing that a little kid would hear. But certainly, I think about them this morning. And as I hear that song, I hope none of you have bumblebees on your lips. But praise be on our lips. I am still just so excited and thankful for last weekend. I want to say another word of thanks to you all who made the Valley Creek Go weekend so, so amazing. I mean, we saw right at 200 folks involved in 26 projects around our community. Something like 500 volunteer hours were given over the Saturday and Sunday. It was amazing to gather together last Sunday night as our two campuses came together to hear and to sing and We saw, of course, Matt and Joanna Black share the song that they wrote as we go with us. And I mean, we had everybody involved. I think our youngest Valley Creek goer was two. (laughs) I mean, that's that's getting down there. I'm not going to mention who the oldest Valley Creek goer was, but they were certainly older than two. Uh, We had just an amazing opportunity to serve. And I thank you for that. I thought the meal last Sunday night was just awesome. And it was great to visit with friends and family around the table. And let me just say this. If you were not able to be involved for whatever reason, conflict in schedule or just didn't work out, don't be worried. Future plans are already in process and in progress for other Valley Creek Go weekends, uh, probably here in the fall. And so it won't be too far away before we try to make just Jesus' name great in our community, amen? By shining brightly for him through serving our friends and neighbors uh, around this community. So thank you for being a part of VC Go. Uh, we're starting a new series today, a new five-part series called Unconventional Wisdom. And I would invite you to find in your Bibles a fairly unknown and often overlooked book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And I would invite you to find chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're starting a series in a book. And if you're having a little trouble tracking it down, don't feel embarrassed. If you find the Psalms, Nexus, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book that is not often preached from. It's not often referred to. It's stuck inside of a section called the wisdom literature that includes, obviously, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And while Proverbs are utilized quite heavily, there's 31 Proverbs, chapters in Proverbs, people like to read those in a reading plan. They're practical, they're usable, they're very full of upbeat wisdom that we can turn and use in our life. Ecclesiastes is usually pretty much ignored. It's partly because it comes across a little more heavy, a little bit more somber. Uh, The author of the book, most biblical scholars agree, is King Solomon. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 1 gives us just 
a hint of who this is without naming the author directly, the words of the preacher or the teacher, uh, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That son of David, the king, most likely, and I believe firmly, is King Solomon. And it's at the end of his life that this book comes together. The Proverbs are written in large part by Solomon. The Song of Solomon is written in part about the life of Solomon, but the book of Ecclesiastes refers to many of the things that Solomon is trying to pass on to his next generation, next king, son. And we'll focus on things like wisdom and money and possessions and power It goes into the shortness of life and the brevity of life. It goes into things that might focus on the more sensual pleasures that we all seek. And in all that Solomon says, he's trying to point us to something greater. He's trying to point us to the fact that we have something in our hearts that God has uniquely designed. Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 3, verse 11 Kind of the arching theme is that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also put eternity into man's heart. Into every one of your hearts and my heart is there something that longs. Longs for eternity. Longs for what's next. Longs for what Lewis would say is a God-shaped hole in our heart that can only be fulfilled and satisfied by God himself. That part of God's unique creation in humanity is that we long for things. And sometimes we will fill all of those longings with earthly things. But that the only thing that will satisfy is God in his eternal nature and his internal plan. Well, Solomon will write Ecclesiastes to warn us That when we go seeking after temporary things, we will come up short. But if we seek after the eternal things, there we will be fulfilled. So again, the book that we're going to go through, and we're not covering verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but over these five messages, I kind of want to warn you, they feel a little heavy and they feel a little somber. You don't study Ecclesiastes and like, feel great about yourself afterwards. You actually feel a little bit retrospective and a little bit subdued. Because over and over and over, the key word that will be repeated time and time again is the word hevel. Can you say that word with me? Hevel. Hevel. And it simply means vanity or meaninglessness. Probably at its core, it means vapor and mist. And Solomon will use this over and over and over to point to something here on this earth that we seek after, that we try to take possession of. And he will say, it's hevel, it's vapor, it's vanity, it's here today and poof, gone tomorrow. That we need to be... Focusing and pursuing and seeking and centering our lives, not on the things that are hevel, but the things that are eternal. And we're going to see that in chapter two. Whenever 
Solomon does something big. He goes big. He tries something big. He puts himself in an experiment that can only be described as seeking everything this world has to offer. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. If you have found Ecclesiastes and you're in chapter two now, would you say, I'm with you? Let's hear this experiment that Solomon tries in his own life, which is full of important truth. Ecclesiastes 2, chapter 2, verse 1, Solomon writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was Vanity, hevel, mist, vapor. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female servants and had servants who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem." I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. And I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon describes a crazy experiment. It begins in verse 1 where he's having a conversation with himself. He's talking to himself. He's having an internal dialogue. And he's saying, self, Solomon, let's do something. Let's try something. Let's experiment with something. Let's seek out every pleasure. Let's go enjoy ourselves. The message paraphrase describes it as an experiment with pleasure. Solomon, if you can find something, if you can discover something that you think will give pleasure, go have it. Go get it. Try it. And that's what he seeks to do. That's what he designs this experiment to do. He says in verse three, so that he could see everything that was good on the face of the planet under heaven for people to 
pursue in the short days of their life. He thinks if there is something out there that can give him pleasure, he is willing to try it out. It's like he's spending a week in Las Vegas. You know, you know people. I've been to Las Vegas once to go to the Grand Canyon. And you know, people go to Las Vegas, America's playground, to just try everything. Things they would never, ever try any other place. Boy, when they get to Vegas, they give it a shot because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So they want to enjoy the gambling and enjoy the drink and enjoy the experience of the shows and enjoy physical pleasures and other things that we may not speak of. Actually, before we went, as we were traveling through, a friend of ours who's a parent told us since we have young sons, instruct them not to pick up the newspapers in Las Vegas. They're not newspapers. They're advertisements for prostitutes. And just like you would have a little display with auto trader or real estate for sale, you can open up one of those bins and pull out a magazine, pull out a newspaper and have every number and website directly to pornography and prostitution. So we told the boys, don't read the newspapers. (laughs) And actually the billboards, don't look at the billboards. Keep your eyes focused on the street. But you go to Vegas People go to Vegas and they feel very free. They feel no rules, no responsibilities, no restraints. They go and you can imagine a pleasure-seeking romp, a week of unexpended lifestyle, something that you had always felt like would give you pleasure. That's what he's trying to orchestrate. But he's doing it not in a week, not in Las Vegas. He's doing it in his life. He's got a long list that he wants to try, a long list He wants to explore. Verse three tells us he begins with wine. He goes to drink, to find cheer in his body through intoxication and through alcohol. He mentions laughter and folly. He's gonna just fill himself with comedians and jokes and silliness and foolishness because, oh, those will sometimes give pleasure. Verse four, he tells us he made great works These are artistic achievements. I mean, he's painting or drawing or creating something that has beauty. And he thinks that's going to give him pleasure. Verse 4, he tells us he builds houses. Architectural achievements. He's building for himself neighborhoods and an empire. But they're filled with gardens and vineyards and trees and plants Not only are the houses and the vineyards and the gardens going to produce and have places to live, but they're going to have fruit and vegetables and all that he can consume. He made pools, the fifth verse says. Now that is unique, friends. Pools of water to fill a forest or to water a forest. This is some sort of irrigation, some sort of piping of water into a very, very dry place. And he's got intellectual power. He's got creativity. He might be an inventor, an engineer. It goes further. He says in verse 7 that he bought servants, bought slaves, men and women. We would certainly never admire slavery. But in his day and in his time, that is a 
signal of power, of prestige, every need being cared for, every want being tended to. It says in verse 7 that he amassed herds and flocks. This is income. This is wealth. In his time when you have cattle and herds and sheep and animals, you are wealthy because those are the trading livestock of the day. Silver and gold he collects, treasures of kings, jewelry, diamonds, gemstones. He has entertainers, he says, coming to his house to perform, to give concerts and to entertain he and his guests. Oh, verse 8 tells us that he had many concubines. Actually, 1 Kings eleven three tells us that he has over 300 concubines. That's pretty much a different woman every night. His physical desires would never, ever be unmet. Every pleasure, everything you can imagine from entertainment to achievement, from possessions to food, to be served, to be fulfilled sexually, nothing was held back. Any and all accesses, any and all experiments were simply made available to him. He had it all. He went big. And the results are somewhat impressive. He tells us exactly what happens in verse 9. He says, I became great. Now it's the notoriety, it's the fame, it's the fortune. And I surpassed all who were before me. There's no rival. There's no competitor. He is the legend. He is on top of the world. He is numero uno. That Whatever his eyes desired, verse 10, he did not keep from himself. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Do you see the experiment? Do you see what he's tried to do? He saw everything this world so-called offered, pleasure and enjoyment and happiness and fulfillment. And he says, I'm going to take it all in. I'm going to scoop it all up. If it's out there, I'm going to go get it. And the question is, what did he find when he did these things. I mean, his life in some ways is a parable all to itself. Let, let me try this, because sometimes you read the Bible and you think, man, that doesn't make a lot of modern sense. Let me suggest to you, there's a man here in Hardin County who has painted multiple masterpieces, each worth well over a million, who built all the homes in Pine Valley subdivision, Briarwood owns them all, built them all, developed them all, has 500 acres of vineyard down in the southern part of the county and another 1,000 acres of land up in the northern part of the county, has 2,000 head of cattle and some 3,000 head of sheep. According to rumor, has housekeepers and farmhands and other kinds of laborers who do whatever he wants and keeps all that he could ever need in tow. That he had stocks of gold bars and Swiss bank accounts and Caribbean bank accounts and shell companies all over the world to move money so that he never had to pay taxes, never had to give account. That his wife had precious rings and jewelry and necklaces and bracelets, something to the tune of 500 million in jewels alone. And the rumor is, the rumor is that 
Each night, the concerts in his home are magnificent. Beyonce and Bruce Springsteen and Garth Brooks and Taylor Swift all come to his house to perform. He doesn't go see them elsewhere. If I told you there was somebody like that in Hardin County, what would you think? You might be wondering, why are they living in Hardin County? But you would know I was not telling the truth. You would know I was just making up something as a fantasy. But ask yourself, if that was true, if that was possible, how would you feel about that person? Would you admire them? Would you hate them? Would there be jealousy? Would there be envy? Would you try to become their friend so that you could hopefully receive some of what they got? How would you treat them if you saw them at Sam's? Because everybody in Hardin County goes to Sam's. I was there Friday and I think I saw the entire county at Sam's Club on Friday afternoon. The questions about if that was true and how we would feel tell us something about the nature of our hearts. If we're angry, if we're jealous, if we're envious, it tells something about our hearts that we want all of that stuff in our lives. If we think, well, we'd be their friend, we'd be their pal, we would try to snuggle in close and try to make a relationship, it tells us something about our hearts that we would want to shine in their possessions. Solomon wants us to be very, very cautious. He wants us to not jump to quick conclusions that there is something about his experiment and his results that he wants us to know. And it's simply this, that seeking the world's pleasures will never satisfy your soul, will never fill up your heart. That while they look appealing and look desiring, they will still leave you longing in the end. In the lesson, the eye-opening lesson that Solomon comes to the conclusion of is in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, hevel, striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He looks at his hands. He looks at his handiwork. He looks at his possessions. He looks at his treasures. He looks at his vineyards, his fruit trees, his gardens, his houses, his masterpieces, his entertainers, his sexual exploits. And he says, in the end, all that I have acquired, all that I have consumed, all that I have taken hold of is absolutely vanishing. Vanity, vapor, it's meaningless. It's striving after wind. It's the picture of someone who is chasing a storm cloud and trying to get a hold of the wind. It has no point because we know and God's word is so true that those things can't fill the hole we have in our heart. There is only one thing that can fill the hole we have in our heart and it's God. 
It's God's grace and God's love. It's seeking after God's kingdom. It's seeking after the glory of God. It's the recognition that this earth is short. This life is short. There are things that seem to grab at our attention and pull to our heart and we go after them. Things that are material. When you long after material things and obsess over earthly possessions and you lust after worldly pleasures, you will find in the end, after all those pursuits, they're fleeting. They're momentary. They're for just but a second and then you'll want more and you'll seek more and your pursuits will never ever be fulfilled. It's vanity. It's hevel. We can never... And shall never be able to fill our hearts completely with the things this world offers. Fame, houses, lands, boats, cars, you name it. Earthly things and earthly pleasures may make us feel better for the moment. But they will never ever satisfy our souls. This is how 1 John chapter 2 puts it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The lesson Solomon is trying to get across to us is simple. You can try to fill your life with the things of the world, the love of the world, the fleshly desires, the fleshly pursuits, the pride of this earth, or you can fill your life with a love for God, a pursuit for God, a seeking after his kingdom, but you can't do both. One will win and one will lose. And in the scope of eternity, one is passing away and only one is eternal, abiding forever. I'd like to invite the praise team to join me here as I close this message. And I can feel because the Ecclesiastes feels heavy. It's a heavy message because when we really peel back the layers of our heart and the layers of our lives. Every one of us, myself included, we seek after earthly things, earthly possessions, earthly wants. For some of it's its finances. For others of it's its stability. For others it's our name being known. For others it's the sensual desires, sensual pleasures. Still others of us it's this sense of having houses and having toys and having cars and having things that we think will hold us up in others' eyes. We all go after the things. And in the end, we know, every single one of us know, we take none of those with us. They count nothing in the eyes of God. That this world and all of its desires are passing away. 
but whoever does the will of God is going to abide forever. So the question is, what are you chasing after? What is your greatest pursuit? What is your greatest desire? Uh, Jesus once told a parable of a man. It was a story that Jesus told to an audience who questioned about what's most important, what's most valuable in life. And Jesus tells the parable this way, and I'm just going to summarize it. Jesus tells it this way. He says, once there was a man, a rich man who had a land plentiful. And he looks at his land and looks at his crops and his Barns, and he decides he has nowhere else to put all that he has acquired. And so he says to himself, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I'm going to build bigger storehouses for my great harvest. I'm going to do what I can to tear down what I got and make it bigger and better next time. And then once I see all that I've done, I'm going to sit back, eat, drink and be merry. But Jesus turns the parable on its head. He says, but that very night, God says of this man, your life is now accounted for. And in the end, the barns matter not. The harvest matters not. The storehouses matter not. In the end, He has laid up for himself treasures on earth and is not rich toward God. He has spent all his life chasing after earthly things and has not chased after God. The truth of that parable is that none of us know when we will breathe our last. None of us really know when we will be called from this life to the next. None of us really know When our moment shifts from earth to heaven, from now to then, from this life to that life, we never really know. But the question is, in preparation and in anticipation of that, what are we chasing after? What are we seeking after? Are we longing and desiring and pursuing the things that perish, that have no value, that are worldly, earthly, temporary? Or are we pursuing and chasing after God? One will last forever. One is chasing after wind. So what are you chasing most? Where is your heart going after most? Are you chasing after wind? Or are you chasing after God? What would be your heart's wish today? Would you bow your heads with me? simply want to close by asking you to think quietly, soberly. What are you chasing? What's your biggest pursuit? What is the thing that holds most of your attention, consumes most of your thought? In the end, Where does it stack up when it comes to the life that is next and the 
glory that is God's alone. So what are you chasing after? Oh, friend, we can chase after so much. We can go big. But at the end, we have to ask the question, what's it going to matter when we go home? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added to you. Are you seeking first God? Are you chasing after him or are you chasing the wind? One is vanity. One is hope and joy and true fulfillment. So what are you chasing today? I'm going to ask a prayer for us and then we're going to sing a song. And I just want you to know the altar is always open. You can pray where you're seated. You certainly can come and kneel. But I just wonder in this reflective, quiet moment, would you have a conversation with God about what you're seeking most? And if that's not in alignment with what God has called us to be about, maybe there's confession and repentance and recognition that it's not going to last forever. So God, we come to you now. And I ask for every single one of us that we would seek first your kingdom, seek first your glory that we live lives not seeking after the things that are fading away, but that we would seek after you. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.